Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Around the world, Tyler, there's a great deal of interest in what lies on the bottom of the sea. Indeed. Uh, there are there are organizations and companies and countries taking a close look at minerals on the seafloor. There's a tremendous amount of economic interest. The argument being that the future of uh, renewable power requires certain minerals and by golly they're laying on the seafloor there's a lot of interest in this topic and uh, we're going to take a shot at diving into this complicated topic with an incredible guest that we have us with us coming from new zealand tyler yes indeed you know i'm reminded of peter one of my favorite films when i was a a kid was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And <laughs> yeah. there's this great scene. This is the Disney production from the 60s, I want to say. And there's this great scene where Nemo uh, and the prisoners are on the ship and he opens up this big spiral window and you can see the crew with these machine, <laughs> these like right. heavy breathing apparatuses walking around the seabed, collecting all of the stuff. And the Nemo's explaining to them that they subsist off the sea and that they gather everything they need and it's provided to them from the sea. And as we move into the future here in modern society, it seems like we have an interest. There's an interest among some to uh, extract the minerals and uh, stuff yeah. we need yeah. uh, for to sustain our modern way of life. And uh, that could be problematic. So today we're going to learn about this issue kind of holistically, looking at what some of the interest is in the seabed, what's even there, what and 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 how it presents itself, and also discussing some of some of the reasons why this could be problematic and why we need to have a very a, a, an ironclad yeah. uh, regulatory framework in place to make sure that we protect these places. Great deal of concern about this emerging industry, experimental at this stage. So we're going to be speaking today with Phil McCabe. Phil has served as the chairperson of Kiwis Against Seabed Mining. He's joining us from New Zealand. And uh, he is also uh, the Pacific Coordinator for the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, an organization of more than 80 groups worldwide that are paying close attention to the deep sea issues. And uh, we've got an expert. He's going to take us down deep and talk to us about this issue. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Phil McCabe today. Me too. Let's get into it. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Phil, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Uh, hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Phil, let's start off learning a little bit more about you. Tell us tell us how you became involved uh, with seabed conservation and uh, your a little bit of your history and connection with the coast and ocean. 
Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm coming to you from uh, the west coast of the North Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, <clears throat> I was actually born in California, uh, just just uh, in, the, in Silicon Valley in San Jose, and, and grew up spending a lot of time in Santa Cruz. And, and, you know, every weekend we'd go and get rolled by the North Pacific waves. Nice. Um, and, um, yeah, so... We've we've got an amazing coastline here. Uh, you know, two two big islands, with I don't know how many uh, kilometres of coastline. But um, where the town I live in is is a world class uh, surfing destination, and that's sort of over the last two or three decades. That's that's where where a lot of my energy's gone is is playing playing in the waves, um, and you know through through that process you. You develop a relationship with the ocean, and and you know there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of benefit that comes from from living in such a place, and and um, yeah, so with that comes this sort of sense of responsibility, and and that's developed over a number of years. Yeah, you're not the first of. I think there are many great uh, coastal activists and conservationists who come out of the surfing tradition. Of course, here in America, the Surfrider Foundation. Uh, a principal player on coastal policy and uh, coastal conservation. And uh, Sean, I think it's Sean Thompson, isn't it? The world uh, champion surfer whose organization is also active. Uh, it's, uh, it's the love of the sea and the connection uh, that I think drives a lot of the surfers that we've met uh, to act, in, to get involved in conservation of the sea. Uh what brought you to the issue of seabed mining in uh, the Kiwis Against Seabed Mining organization? How did that come about? Um, well, that, yeah, that came about, I guess, you know, you, you could go back. Uh, it's, it's hard to know where to start the story. But um, at some point, uh, New Zealand uh, recognized that we had these resources uh, that lay on the on the seafloor that that could be turned into money. Um, and then at some point, the politicians decided to progress and advance sort of, um, you know, looking at at, at uh, exploiting those resources. And um, so the, the, the government effectively secured uh, ownership of the seabed around New Zealand's waters in our exclusive economic zone. And then they uh, opened up the waters to to uh, mining companies to start, well, to, you know, to firstly gain prospecting and exploration licenses, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, with, with the look to establish an, uh, a, a new industry called seabed mining in New Zealand. Um, and in about 2005, uh, the first prospecting and exploration permits sort of came into being and they, the, the first ones were directly off my coast here in, in Raglan. Um, and the indigenous, you know, part of part of the process was consultation with the, the indigenous uh, traditional sort of uh, custodians of the spaces and our local iwi, uh, local tribe, um, was consulted with by a company who had an exploration uh, permit off our coast. And... And they were so concerned about it um, that they brought it out to the wider community. And there were a couple of uh, sort of public meetings in the town hall here that were bursting at the seams. You know, if, if our community is just 
completely focused around the ocean. We've got a beautiful big harbour, fishing, surfing, um, you know, all of that. And so people really have a strong connection to the ocean here. And, and, and yeah, two, two big meetings um, uh, happened and out of that uh, formed a, a, a community group called called Kiwis Against Seabed Mining, CASM. And for the first sort of, what am I going to say, five, seven years, uh, CASM was um, working all up and down the, the West Coast with communities and effectively pushing back proposals from companies that were, were sort of advancing their, their, their proposals. And then in 2012, one company had, had made a lot of ground and they were saying they're about to uh, submit an application to actually start mining the last stage of the process. And I just got out of the surf and a friend of mine that was in, involved in um, in CASM uh, sort of said, look, this is this is happening, man. This is happening right now. And if, if we don't stand up now, this is going to, this is going to, this is going to roll ahead. And Chasm had gone a bit sleepy for a couple of years leading up to that, so I went to a couple of meetings and um, committee meetings, and there were really only three or four people left in the in the in the team. Um, and yeah, I basically jumped on board, and within a couple of months, I was the chairperson and person. And then we then we just basically rolled out a a, a, a coastal campaign. Um, you know, and and basically re rebirthed it and and got it rolling, and then in late 2013, uh, the company actually uh, put in their their application to New Zealand's Environmental Protection Authority, and by that time we had we'd really rallied uh, about 500 kilometres of coastline, the communities along that stretch, and rallied the fishing industry, etc., um, to to engage in the process, the EPA process, and yeah, that's effectively how it started. What a story. Uh, Phil, I think that uh, I've got to say that around the world, likely uh, some of the most uh, advanced work on seabed mining uh, advocacy and also in terms of the development of the industry is really happening around New Zealand, it seems. You're, you're talking about 2005 when the uh, statutes were put in place to uh, – set the stage for deep sea mining and then permit applications in 2013 eight years ago uh tell us about the 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 type of deep sea mining or or, or seabed mining that was at issue in those early permits filed uh uh in in new zealand and uh that you were responding to yeah sure so that so when I got involved in 2012, there was a, there was an unbroken line of exploration permits um, covering basically the whole of the west coast of the North Island, and I'm going to say that's maybe 800 kilometres long. Um, you know, dozens of exploration permits out to 12 nautical miles, and then out in our EEZ, uh, there were bigger permit areas uh, on the west coast plus a big area and. Um, plus a big area uh, northeast of our North Island and then another one off the east coast of the South Island. Um, the West Coast proposal, so there was a lot of interest, a lot of corporate interest in this, and the government at the time was was a right-wing government who was very pro-mining and pro-extractive industries, and um, 
that the West Coast permits were looking for iron sands. So we've, our West Coast of the North Island is, is, is lined with black sand beaches, um, beautiful dark black sand, and it's full of uh, vanadium titanomagnetite, which is, which is a quite high-grade titanium in the, in the sand, um, but iron ore effectively. And um, yeah, so the, the depths that they were looking to mine, it, it eventually came down to one application area uh, off the coast of a um, small community called Pātea in the South Taranaki Bight, which is a, which is a wondrous um, body of water that has one of the highest uh, diversity of marine mammals uh, of any place in the world. And um, they were looking to mine an area about 20 kilometres from shore in depths of 20 to 40 metres of water. And they were looking to suck up 50 million tonnes of seabed sediment every year for 35 years. And then of that 50 million tonnes, they were targeting about 5 million tonnes per year of the of the iron ore and then the other 45 million tons would go down a waste pipe back down toward the bottom um, and and uh, discharge effectively and let the environment deal with whatever the whatever was in the discharge um, so that was the west coast black stand mining proposals and then on the east coast uh, there was there was uh, hydrothermal vents in the Kermadec Trench, which is northeast of the North Island, and off the South Island, we did uh, field a second EPA application in 2014 uh, in, into 2015 um, by, uh, by, for, by a company looking for phosphate nodules um, on the Chatham Rise, which runs east of Christchurch. Um, it's a massive uh, mountain uh, undersea mountain chain that runs runs east from the South Island and something like 65% of New Zealand's commercial fishing catch is caught in that area. So a really highly productive area. Um, so phosphate nodules are small uh, phosphate rich rocks that are effectively scattered across the seafloor. Um, and that was in 400 to 500 metre depths. Hmm. Okay, so I think I'm getting a picture here. And this is interesting because uh, these are two very different uh, environments and uh, <clears throat> mining techniques, it sounds like. So on the West Coast, you've got this black iron sand. Uh, man, I can just picture it in my mind's eye. And so basically, the, in, in 40, feet, 40 uh, meters of depth, the method being that you'd kind of vacuum it up. Uh, you dredge it up take what you want, discard the rest down the back end, the pipe. Uh, on the East Coast, I guess, we have these phosphate nodules, and this is really 10, 10 times deeper, much deeper water. Mm. And uh, is it, how, how would these modules, is it the same kind of process, Phil? Is, or would these be sucked up to a boat, uh, or is there some other method of gathering these things? Yeah, effectively sucked up. Um, you know, vacuumed up and, and along with the nodules comes all the sort of soft sediment that surrounds them and all the organisms that live in and on the nodules. So the nodules effectively form the habitat structure for the creatures that exist there. And 
you know, without the nodules, then there's 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 no niches. You know, well, it removes a lot of the opportunity. For, you know, sea life is attracted to hard surfaces um, often, and <clears throat> yeah, without these hard surfaced nodules, um, that that removes a lot of the opportunity for life to exist. And you know, there's there's real concern around the sponges and the corals, etc. That that um, that exist in the area. You've got the you've effectively got two main aspects. Well, more than two, but two main ones is you effectively wipe out the mined area that's targeted. So the west coast proposal was 66 square kilometres. Um, and that, that area would effectively be wiped out. And the recovery time on that was really vague. There was no real, no actual definitive time frame for, for observing any recovery of the area. In the, in the Chatham Rise uh, phosphate nodule case, it was a 5,000 square kilometer area wow. that they were looking to mine over 20, 20 years, I think. Um, so and then you've you've got the so that that area gets basically devoid of life and then let's see how long it takes to recover if it ever does um and then you've got the plume created from the discharge pipe and and that's that's the major area of concern because there's no way of telling uh, how far um the plume will travel what direction it'll travel um, it's all it's all done via modelling, and it's it's very vague because there are no precedents on it. Um, and and you know the smothering of uh, sea life on the sea floor, more greater turbidity, suspended uh, sediments that that remain in the water column for however long, however far. Um, you know, so the the deeper you go, generally the the environments are more sensitive and. Uh, less able to cope with sedimentation um so yeah that yeah. that that does make sense you know phil went back going way back to 2004 2005 when uh these companies first start to take an interest in the permitting and prospecting of of these mining opportunities uh were were the companies anticipating that the community would uh, be would have concerns and ultimately rise up and create Kiwis against seabed mining? I mean, or did they think that this would just be an overwhelmingly popular thing? Like, hey, it's free. We can exploit this. You know, it's just the bottom of the ocean. I mean, nothing's there. There's kind of this attitude that it's just, you know, it's, it's yeah. just this desolate place with nothing. I mean, uh, yeah. surely these companies, because they were doing prospecting, knew that there were things there, but the public the public response seems like maybe a miscalculation absolutely 100% and that's that was kind of like a summary kind of statement that i that i shared with decision makers and hearings as well as you know the, the, the select committee we 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 ended up uh, putting a petition into government and we presented to a select committee of parliamentarians and that was effectively it you you have seen this resource You've thought, let's go get it, um, and you. As the, the closer you got to the to the point of uh, wanting to go get it, the more complex everything uh, appeared and became. And you've completely underestimated one the complexities, the sort of environmental, ecological complexities of moving this 
traditionally land-based activity into the marine environment um, because everything's connected and uh, and you can't control you, you know there's there's no there's nowhere to put to safely put the waste material um, so you've underestimated the ecological complexities and b you've underestimated our connection the, the human connection to the marine environment and how you know how 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 strong our connection is and to what lengths we'll go to to protect it so they they completely underestimated it and uh so the the original permit for the west uh, coast uh project the black sands mining project 66 square kilometers 50 million tons of year processed to get 5 million tons a year so 90 percent of what's gathered on the seafloor is dumped back down in some way uh, but 2013 and then 2014 the uh, the second uh, proposal for phosphate nodules so it reels ahead now seven eight years uh, how has this uh, how has the story played out since then yes yeah, so so we heard the well the EPA heard the uh, the, the application by the by the mining company and CASM um, rallied, you know, big numbers of submissions in opposition. That we there was something like four and a half thousand submissions in opposition to the proposal. It was three times the number that the EPA had ever received for any other uh, wow. application wow. it had heard. Well done. And and then um, the fishing industry got right in behind it because you know there's, there's there's impacts on on the marine environment. There's you know potential impacts on fish. There's loss of space for them areas. You know so they got involved, and then the local iwi uh, um, put a lot behind uh, you know stopping this. They have a a, a long-standing cultural relationship with the space that was being uh, looked that was being targeted. And they had a had a cultural obligation to um, to they have a cultural obligation to protect that space and 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 ensure that it can provide the services to their future generations. So they got very uh, very um, put up very strong fight and and effectively uh, in twenty so the the application was lodged in twenty thirteen there was a. 40-day hearing uh, in 2014. In July, I think 2014, the decision came out and it was in our favour, which was a total surprise to everyone. Uh, you know, it wasn't a surprise because we knew that was what it needed to be, but that, that it actually came through was a big surprise. Indeed. Um, yeah, so that, that kind of set ripples globally because it was the first application of its kind to be heard uh, anywhere in the world. And... Um, you know, it was it was it was like, oh, jeepers! There must be something. There must be a problem with this. You know, I think was 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 the response and the government response again. It was that right wing government, and they just couldn't believe their ears. Um, and yeah, and then that that the the next application, the Chatham Rise one, came in in late 2014. Uh, sorry, in 2014, just as the decision came out from the first one, and. The decision in 2015 from that came out, and it was also declined by the wow. EPA. Wow. Um, so two two applications, two declines, um, and and you know that that really uh, put a spanner in the works for the industry and for the government plans. Um, the first applicant reapplied again in 2016 for 
effectively exactly the same proposal. In the first decision, they were told to go out, go and find out a lot more information. Basically, they had no no baseline information of what existed in the area, um, and so so if you don't know what's there to start with, you can't predict the effects and, and what the impacts will be. Um, so, and in the second application, they really didn't do any more work, um, and they they applied in 2016. It was heard again in 2017, and this time the government uh i'm going to say this publicly um the government kind of stacked the decision making committee and huh. and, and it was a four it was a four person committee um where the other ones there were five people odd number an odd number of um, commissioners and this time it was a split decision two of the decision makers uh were in favor two were strongly against and the the chairperson of the committee uh, exercised his casting vote and pushed it over the line. Um, so that happened in 2017, and then it w- was appealed through the High Court, and it f- got flipped in our favour at the High Court, and then in the Court of Appeals after that, the company appealed to the Court of Appeal, and it, it's, it stayed in, in our side, uh, but in a much stronger way through that process, and then a Supreme Court hearing and we're awaiting a decision from the Supreme Court any day, but it's uh, feeling quite confident around that. Wow. Um, so, so, yeah. What a roller coaster <laughs> ride over there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But down, it's, down you know, so, I, so I, think, I think New Zealand's kind of like somewhere around 10 years ahead of a lot of the rest of the world in this process, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Phil, I, I'd love to. Can you tell us more? I mean, wh- what's amazing to me is the that these applicants are just you know, the, the permit applicants. These companies, the seabed mining investors, are really wanting to this to go through. They must. I mean, this is a now from two thousand five to present long campaign. They must have spent millions of dollars by this point on uh, the surveying and the technical stuff and the geology and the boats and doing all this work and the lawyers and the lawyers to say and no, the lawyers and yeah. the bribes we're forgetting the bribes. there was a lot there were a lot of lawyers i'll tell you that yeah i'm kidding about the bribes of course but who are these people uh who who are these who are these companies how are they backed um uh can you tell us a little bit about them um, the first company, the West Coast company, was 95% plus foreign-owned through most of the, the the time that we've been engaging with them. There was some kind of share flip uh, just before the second application that, that showed on paper that they were 50.5% uh, New Zealand-owned so that they could, so that they could uh, make that statement in the media. That they were a New Zealand company, um, yeah. So okay, and then you know, so so the the the, the shareholdership is is spread across the world, really, uh, Europe, Canada, Asia, Australia. Why why would is it is it the yeah. iron sands? Is it the fact that it's just such a, a let's call it a low hanging fruit Shallow that they would water. start there? Because when yeah. I think of yeah. And, and Phil, maybe my characterization, I do this all the time when we have uh, guests on from other countries. I, I always try to kind of 
<laughs> but my perception of New Zealand is that y'all are pretty uh, environmentally conscientious. You guys did great with the pandemic. You were good on masks. Good, I, I think. I mean, how? Yeah, we we have. Yeah. Not carry on. It seems like a strange place to to a, a vanguard for seabed mining to be in New Zealand. Um, what? Why? Why do you suppose that that this was where this all kicked off? I, I don't know why we were so far ahead of the rest of the world. Um, I honestly, I don't honestly don't know. But yeah, we we do have that. You know, we. As people, I think we generally are, you know, conscientious about the environment. We've got, you know, we're a lot of us are, you know, islands. Well, in in the environment, yeah, we're island people. Uh, we're an island nation full of coastal people. Um, but yeah, I don't know why why it started here. It, it just did, you know. So to this um, day, what, please continue. So uh, what I, what I will say is that you know I, I mentioned in two thousand and twelve the the vast. Uh, spread and, and number of exploration permits um there's now only five exploration permits in all of new zealand waters and um three of them are held by those two companies that f that failed um that have failed to date and then there's two other small areas that will never get permits because they're close to shore and places that you know it just can't happen so effectively the story is all but over here in new zealand and we've gone full cycle you know we've gone we've gone from that point of you know getting excited about all the money that can be made to actually scrutinizing it and going through the process of really getting a better understanding and, and checking whether or not this activity is appropriate and it's come up clearly that it's not appropriate particularly given the state of the world's oceans you know we can't we can't carry on breaking stuff we need to allow the ocean to to restore its health, you know, restore its abundance, and 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 um, uh, it's just totally inappropriate. So we've we've gone full circle. The corporate interest is 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 gone. Our government, once the Supreme Court decision comes out, our government will be, re and we are we are asking the question now. What are you going to do? And we're calling for for just an outright ban in New Zealand waters. It's a yeah, marine protected area designation or something to prohibit the nearshore, the mining in these of these deposits around around New Zealand. Is that what you're hoping to possibly get permanent protection in place? Yeah, just just ban the activity. It's an inappropriate yeah. activity. You know, it's like right. some things that we humans want to do. That it's you know, it's okay we can do them, but some things we think are good ideas, and we, when we actually think about it, they're not. Yeah. And that's the case for, for this one. So you were the head of the uh, of CASM, the Kiwis Against Seabed Mining, really it sounds like from about 2014 to 2019 during these pitch battles as these companies were taking these permits into the regulatory system and uh, into the courts as well. Uh, you know, as you're saying, you guys have been through the whole system top to bottom in terms of the experience of a new industry emerging on shorelines around the world. Uh, that experience, uh, I've got to think, is incredibly valuable now as you shift your focus to the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition as the Pacific Coordinator, an organization that's looking at a broader spectrum of seabed conservation issues around the world, including the interest in deep sea uh, polymetallic nodule mining, 
uh, that's just starting to take shape, it seems, in the last couple of years uh, with the International Seabed Authority. Uh, I'm wondering, as the, as the experienced leader of the opposition in New Zealand on, on, on seabed mining, uh, what advice would you give to the rest of the world's conservation community about how to approach an issue like deep sea nodule mining, uh, where there's so much interest right now going on with how much money and material can be gained from the seafloor? Mm. Firstly, I'll just correct you on the time frame. It's 2012 to 17. Um, but okay, yeah. thanks. But yes, yeah. So, um, what advice do I have to give? to who sorry to the people opposing well, or to the, the people the, that are the proposing con the conservation community around the world that is now starting to encounter deep sea mining uh manganese nodules polymetallic nodules yep. uh you know beyond the waters of new zealand now all across the pacific uh what should they know about the experience you had in successfully combating this in industry in uh, new zealand well, firstly, that um, it's not a done deal, and if you've got, if your governments, if your if, if your laws allow engagement, and you engage fully and properly, and and with commitment, and well, you know, reasonably well resourced, then the the natural outcome could very well be, should very well be that they don't get the go ahead. Um, but not a lot of countries have as as inclusive. Uh, participatory processes as New Zealand do, as New Zealand does. So that's not a given everywhere. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's absolutely an issue that's uh, gaining momentum on both sides of the fence. There's, there's increased sort of um, corporate interest in this. Uh, there is stuff at the bottom of the oceans that can be turned into money um, that can, that can, you know, be used. Um, but at, at what cost and what environmental cost um, and, and who's going to benefit from it. You know, the, the, the Pacific region has been exploited. Well, the, 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 I'll reframe that. The resources, the natural resources that lie within the territories of the Pacific Island states have been exploited for decades. But has that... Uh, benefited the people on the ground you know there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of poverty and and substandard uh, living conditions that exist in in a lot of these places um, north the, the the global north has benefited uh, from the resources being transported to the north and and um, wealthy people in the north have benefited significantly from the exploitation but it hasn't benefited uh, the Pacific countries or their or their people as much as it should have. So there's, histor there's a historical thing there. Um, this in this case, it's no different. Um, it's just another it's just another playing field. One of the arguments, Phil, that I've heard uh, in favor of uh, seabed mining, and particularly 
uh, going after Peter. I'm not even going to attempt to say these types of nodules you're talking about here. No. These these deep ones, though, in the Pacific. Yeah, the polymetallic nodules and also manganese nodules. Yeah, there's well, sulfides and crusts. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of different varieties. Of there's a, there's a whole universe of stuff down here. But one of the arguments you hear is that uh, these minerals will be instrumental in uh, human societies evolution past fossil fuels that we need these heavy minerals for battery technology and energy storage technology and that if we want to save the planet we got to go we got to shift off fossil fuels and this is one way to do that what what do you say to people who see a salvation in uh going after these minerals firstly yes we do need to move away from fossil fuels Secondly, this, the, any, any narrative that you may have heard about we need to mine the, the world's oceans so that we can get these metals is rubbish. It's just not true. It's been propagated and, and crafted by a couple of very clever companies um, that, you know, they're, they're effectively a hybrid. Well, one, one in particular is a hybrid company. It's its its faces um we are a deep sea mining company but our you know their 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 basic focus is um a pr marketing company that's trying to sell the story and um and you know that right now they're 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 trying to sell the story to this new york stock exchange so they can become publicly listed uh, via a merger and um basically those shareholders were involved you know that the the key people in that company were involved in a seabed mining company uh, that was that was had had permits here in New Zealand but also right across the Pacific in several countries called Nautilus Minerals Limited and particularly in Papua New Guinea they were given a, a permit by the Papua New Guinea government to to start mining um, but the communities there have fought that for over a decade and in 2019 Nautilus Minerals went bankrupt but the the early investor in nautilus minerals ramped up their share price and then got out at the high point and he's he's now the, the front man for for this company that's uh that's um got permits in international waters under the under the united nations organization called the international seabed authority yeah uh, this company's got three permits in the in an area called the clarion clipperton zone which is yep sits in the in international waters between Hawaii and Mexico and just north of Kiribati. And um, they've, <clears throat> they're sponsored by, <clears throat> excuse me, they're sponsored by three Pacific Island countries, um, Nauru, Tonga and Kiribati um, under, for these permits. But the, the strategy of this, these particular actors uh, is, we believe, to, you know, ramp up their their company share price and then whether or not they ever get to mine is questionable but they they make a lot of money in the in the in the process a reason to be uh skeptical about some of these early experimental initiatives i wanted to ask you about uh, a, a project that was recently uh undertaken in the clarion clipperton zone uh by global sea minerals resources a belgium company who put a marine uh, crawler mining uh, piece of equipment on the bottom of the sea at 2.8 miles, about four and a half kilometers deep, called the, uh, I think it was called the Patina or Patinia, 
Patania two. Patania yeah. two was the name of the machine. It was it was it lost originally. The the tethers uh, failed, but uh, it struck me when I saw that story that there are ships and there are equipment and there's attempts to get this going. Can you talk about that incident and what it meant to your you and your community at the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition? Yeah, well, um, so Greenpeace is one of the members of uh, the DSCC um, and the Rainbow Warrior was out there observing for the first time uh, exploration activities by companies. And I think there were two, maybe three uh, mining companies in this area between Hawaii and, and Mexico. And yeah, GSR dropped a, dropped the Patania too. To, to, it's like a it's like a pilot vehicle, a smaller version of what they would uh, build if they were to actually start exploiting commercially. Um, and at some point in the process, they they lost uh, they lost connection. You know, it's it's connected by a tether to the ship. They lost connection, and it looked like they weren't going to be able to recover this machine. And it speaks to, you know, we're talking four and a half thousand meters depth and. It's technologically difficult enough to be doing this activity in 40 metres or 10 times that in 450 metres as was between the West Coast New Zealand and the Chatham Rise thing. But then you go 10 times the Chatham Rise application or proposal into the clarion Clipperton zone at 4,500 metres. It becomes very technically difficult. Um, and they're a long way from actually figuring out the technology to do this. Um, and yeah, so that that was that was an interesting thing. They they eventually uh, regained uh, the machine and brought it back to the ship and and carried on. Um, but yeah, there's there's real there's real questions to as I said earlier. The the deeper you go, the more sensitive the environments become, mm-hmm. and and the the clearing clipperton zone these these abyssal plains where the polymetallic nodules exist are just like super sensitive super low energy um not much movement no light very low levels of oxygen um and you know super sensitive environments the 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 nodules lie in this sort of soft sediment the nodules themselves provide as as with the the phosphate nodules the, they provide the the habitat for the organisms that exist there to 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 exist there um so you remove the nodules you, you basically wipe out the the ability for life to exist on the seafloor or, or at least the life that exists there now that's evolved to exist there um and the the nodules take something like 10 million years to to uh grow into what they are they've been you know and and the sediment i heard something the other day it takes about a thousand years to establish a millimeter of of the soft sediment and um so super sensitive areas and again it's a it's a process of sucking up the nodules and all the all the soft sediment around and then um sucking trying to get trying to get this up four and a half um kilometers up to this up to the ship and then you've got a you've you've got all that soft sediment that you've got to discharge back into the water column and this is an area that's completely untouched you know humanity really hasn't been down there we haven't we haven't wrecked it yet um and 
the, the the scale of what's being proposed there is really something. You know, the the exploration permit area. If you look at a map, um, which we can't do now, but it's it's the map of exploration permits is as wide as the continental United States. Yeah, you know, it's about four. It's about a four and a half thousand kilometer uh, stretch, I think, something like that. Um, and each permit is seventy five thousand square kilometers. Yeah, it's we, a big area. It's huge, and it's something we've put on Coastal News Today a couple of times, but to see the Pacific, the layout of the exploration permit areas from the International Seabed Authority, it really is extraordinary. It extends from you know, south of uh, Hawaii and to the, I guess, to the west of Hawaii, almost all the way across the Pacific toward, the, t- toward Mexico. It's an extraordinarily large area that there's uh, interest in and lots of claims have been staked so far you know i've got a question can we learn a little bit more about this international seabed authority uh a part of the un i believe uh uh phil what is this body and uh, aside from seabed mining are there other issues that this that the international seabed uh, authority looks at yeah so uh the ISA is is based in Jamaica. It was it was uh, set up under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, um, basically you know the global treaty or the global constitution of how we should how we should interact with the ocean. Um, and there's real problems with the ISA processes, and you know that's one of our major concerns. Is is just like corporate capture of this small it's it's a kind of an independent body outside the un but its membership is is 167 countries only a small number of those countries actually engage at at any meaningful level um and it's it's really it's really pushing the process of of establishing the laws that will enable mining in international waters it's responsible for internet the seabed of international waters and that covers half the planet half the planet's seabed it's quite governed it's quite a jurisdiction it's It's quite quite a big area yeah it's quite a jurisdiction for this little jamaica outfit you know yeah yeah but um there's there's real questions about how they're process you know how they're progressing this and um, you know like that there's there's a, a, it's got these various organs within it you know the assembly is is the 167 countries and and there can be some observers and the DSCC the group that I'm working under um, is isn't is a is an observer uh, member um, as are some other organisations. Um, and then it moves down to a council, which is a number, I can't remember the number of states, but they make most of the decisions. And then it moves down another level to the Legal and Technical Commission, which is, uh, I think, 30 people from different places around the world. And there's only one biologist on that uh, Legal and Technical Commission. Wow. And, and this LTC, the commission, meets behind closed doors. No one knows what goes on in these meetings of thirty people, and, it, and it's 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 weighted in favour of pro mining countries. Um, the the it's you've got engineers, you've got lawyers, and you've got a biologist. You know, yeah, <laughs> out of the out of the thirty. So the, and they're the ones who advise the council, and then the council effectively makes the decisions, 
and then it goes to the assembly and the assembly just votes you know so well it's and and so so we're calling for a reform of the isa and actually just last night the european parliament uh, passed a resolution that had a couple of strong paragraphs in it about seabed mining one saying you know this is a this is how can, i'm not going to try and um say it word for word i'll say it in my language basically uh seabed mining is dangerous it risks biodiversity loss um we sh we encourage uh states or the part i think they encourage states within the eu to support a moratorium or call for a moratorium and the second paragraph talks about the isa and the problems with the isa and that states should engage and and ensure there's transparency and due process wow so so not a, so that you know there's sorry carry on uh well not a good if you if you're looking at the context we're in right now you're talking about let me just summarize what i've heard you tell us and the listeners here number one there's a lot of speculative companies that are fiddling around with this industry trying to establish exploration permit rights or other things to uh, manipulate stock prices that are really not truly serious uh, effort yeah. it sounds a little bit like the pebble mine uh, companies up in alaska who were also not serious mining companies that had never really done any work but but from an investor development standpoint it was about chasing money and permit rights that could produce stock value uh, we've got that. Yeah. We, we have an international organization that is not strong, uh, poorly designed, uh, not transparent, and uh, dominated by the economic interests. And uh, and we have a technology that has not been developed or or evaluated uh, on top of that. And finally, our knowledge of the seafloor. Uh, is limited and it's a it's a special area as you say incredibly sensitive uh, if anybody's looked at uh, the, the the marks on the seafloor from the Ixtoc spill in the 1970s where they were working to close off an oil spill out in the Gulf of Mexico you know 30 years later there's no difference nothing has filled in those tracks the damage mm. to the seafloor are as vivid today as they were 30 40 it's years like the ago. moon yeah, it's, so when you put those together, uh, you know, economic exploitation, a very poorly organized and effective uh, instrument of management, uh, you know, no technology and a lack of knowledge. Well, damn, Phil, it seems like what we ought to do is slow down. Uh, <laughs> Good idea. Yeah. What's the state of affairs around the Where do you see this issue right now? Are we on the cusp of seeing this industry emerge or are these barriers uh, going to keep it sort of in, in, in Plato land for a while? Well, you know, I, I, um, you know, I've got this sort of forerunner experience in New Zealand where, where we went through the cycle and I think it's a microcosm of the, of the global story, you know. Um, it, it's, it's got a dawn on everyone and it is dawning on more and more people. There's, there's a lot of momentum uh, around this, um, it's dawning on people that this is just maybe it, at least now is not the time, and and B, um, we can't do this without breaking stuff. So it's not really uh, appropriate. Um, we we know that you know it it destroys habitats and then impacts much larger areas. 
So, um, you know, you just can't, it's inescapable. The destructive nature is inescapable. Um, yeah, the, the, the sort of missing piece here a little bit, I, I mentioned that this one company is, is sponsored by three Pacific states. They're effectively using these states to, because under the ISA, if a company wants to go and mine, they've got to find a, a, a country to sponsor them. Um, you know, f under an exploration permit. Um, and so these three tiny Pacific states are being, we think we're being manipulated by this company um, and and GSR has a, the, the, the Belgian company um, has a sponsorship under the Cook Islands as well. So another, another country that's looking at seabed mining. Um, so there's risks involved for these tiny states by getting involved with these companies and, and these processes and they're not they're not properly understood um, and the benefits that they might get are minuscule in comparison to what the companies might get if this ever went ahead you know um, but they're taking a, the, the countries are taking a large risk and taking a lot of responsibility and, and liabilities come with it so we're we're working with people in these um in some of these countries um who are also concerned not only not only about you know the effects on the environment but also around you know the the liabilities that their countries are getting them getting themselves into mm. wow well uh phil i have to say you are an incredibly knowledgeable person here on this issue and uh are you sure you don't have like a PhD in on seabeds? <laughs> it's I'm really impressed. I've got a PhD on on sitting in the sea and on a surfboard and waiting for waves to come to me. Uh, it's incredible. Um, it's incredible. You're you you really uh, understand this. It's clear that you have uh, dedicated uh, so much energy and uh, hard work, dedication uh, there in New Zealand to protecting the seabed, and uh, I definitely want to thank you for that. I'm curious to know, <clears throat> I know you have thoughts on this. I, I was reading uh, in preparation for the show about your Soulscape uh, project that you created. <laughs> and so I know you have thoughts on kind of sustainable existence uh, and, and kind of our society, the way that we consume and obviously mining uh, feeds this kind of industrial nature of, of the world. What, if, if we're not going to get stuff from the seabed, I mean, how do you see the future of society looking? I mean, let me just ask you that. Like, are we going to have to change our economic system to become more sustainable? Where are we going? I'm talking big, big, big picture. Where would you like to see humans? How would you like to see us change our relationship uh, with the planet as broadly as that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I, I think it, it's, it's behavior change effectively you know we, we can't carry on as we have been we've we've enjoyed the last 50 years i've enjoyed my life of i think it's the most you know the time that i've been alive it's we've had more freedom well a lot of us have had more freedom and and more uh stuff than anyone before us and however many generations have come before us we can afford to take a couple steps back from this sort of uh crazy consumption crazy you know have anything i want whenever i want it kind of lifestyles that we in the in the west and the and wealthy nations and uh, in, in privileged positions can you know can have 
So I think we need to take a bit of a step back and re reevaluate. We need to fall in line with the boundaries of our planet. Um, we need to think more locally, source source what, source our needs more locally. Um, yeah, it's a it's a big question. It ta it's a, it's a big it's a big big ship to turn around. But we do need to uh, rethink things. And and as far as I guess in a practical sense. Um, government, it's it's a yeah. <laughs> I, I don't it, yeah. I, I haven't really delved into what the political process is in turning it around, but I do know that people's consciousness around it uh, has is, is shifting. I think the pandemic experience has given people time and space to think through these things. We've we've been forced to be behave and live more locally. Um, and I know for a lot of us here in New Zealand, we've had a, a really soft experience comparably to the rest of the world. And and the the brief experience that we had, we we enjoyed, and maybe because of its brevity. But um, yeah, I feel you. Yeah. Well, uh, mm. Phil, it's uh, you know that's such a uh, it's a topic that we all grapple with, and and you look around the world. We know the population of the world is about seven point six billion, and it's going up. And there's a lot of as the standards of living rise around the world, at least in the first world countries, uh, the demand for more stuff uh, continues to go up, and uh, it puts a lot of pressure on the environment mm. that we all rely on. Um, when you're, you've been uh, involved with the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, the DSCC, now for a while, and working as the Pacific Coordinator, you've mentioned that the level of awareness about this issue around the world is going up. Uh, can you give us sort of a state of affairs in terms of the international conservation community's uh, focus and capability when it comes to contending with this new emerging uh, international industry of deep sea mining. Yeah, um, well, there's a lot more attention has come to it over the last year and a bit, I'd say. Um, it was it was a pretty sleepy sort of um, not central to to a lot of discussions, say two years ago. It's it's really ramping up, um, and and that that happens as as the industry gets closer to. You know, to actually moving forward, um, people do. You know, there's alarm bells ring and and, and it, it moves up the priority list. Right. And because it's such a, because it's such a such an offensive proposal to anyone with a a personal connection to the ocean. You know, this this idea of strip mining vast areas and just dumping the waste. I mean, what in, in what universe in the 21st century can can you just push your waste out into the environment to deal with? Um, you know, we've moved beyond that type of behaviour. So it's a it's an activity that's really hard to accept when you get a base understanding of what it is. And so I think there's I feel that the natural evolution of this process is that the world will come to the realization that we shouldn't do this and we can't do this and that it's more important to to enable the ocean to provide its its vast array of functions and services and and become you know 
I think I think the the, the global conversation around around human relationship with the ocean is about uh, protecting, preserving, and restoring. That's where from from ground level, community level efforts, all the way up to the United Nations level, and everything in between. Everyone's talking about protecting the ocean and restoring ocean health for you know climate stability. It's it plays it's the biggest driver around around um, stabilizing climate. It's it provides food. You know all those services. If we can if we can allow the ocean to restore itself. And and we as as a as a species can can you know I want to see us feel comfortable with the state of our ocean. I want to see us feel like we can rely on the ocean to provide what we need. You know, these days yeah. a lot of people go to the shoreline and they stick a fishing line in the ocean, and it's like, am I going to catch a fish today? Yeah. You know, fifty hundred years ago, you were going to catch a fish. You know, so. Yeah. We, we need to go back to that place. We need to, we, you know, we want to be able to rely on the ocean. And, and for us to do that, we need to treat it right. The ocean, uh, for, in order for us to rely on the ocean, the ocean has to rely on us. I mean, we, in a, yeah. in a way, we ha- this is the, the, the corner that we're at now in human evolution is that uh, we are the controllers of our own destiny here and we have to make a decision. It's, it's as big and broad and simple as that. You know, we're, we're at this point and, and, and the ocean is, it's, yeah, it's, it's the one thing. It's, it's, it's maybe it's the simplest thing we can do to, to, uh, to sort out the climate crisis is enable the ocean to provide it to, to, to perform its functions. We are uh, at the beginning of 2021 was the beginning of the United Nations, uh, a decade of uh, ocean science and sustainable ge- de- development. It's the, called the Ocean Decade. Uh, there is an effort. World Oceans Day, Tyler, was this month. Uh, so in June of 2021, there is a, a focus and an attempt internationally to get serious about uh, protecting the vast resources of the ocean, not just for the services and the values, of course, and, and that's how we have to talk about it in the political world, but for the for the moral reasons and the integrity mm. of the planet and the spiritual reasons why uh, wasteful exploitation of the planet's resources is barbaric to so many people. Uh, it's We've done it for centuries and thousands of years, and there comes a point where we need to get better. Uh, are you an optimist, Philip, when you look down the road and what you think the human community can do to respond to the challenges we're facing uh, with the ocean and our resources? I'm, I'm 100% an optimist. Are you uh, really? Great. Yeah, I am, man. I mean, like, you know, we've got no choice. So when we're up against the wall, we'll, we'll, we'll correct ourselves. And we are hard up against the wall right now. And, and we're in the process of correcting ourselves and that's that's what I believe and and I think common sense will prevail in this particular issue you know what we're doing is pushing for a moratorium or a precautionary pause at the international seabed authority and there's a lot of momentum coming towards that um, and and you know just as I said a big one last night the EU voted 
around language and, and supported language around that. So, um, am I am I am I an optimist? Yes, we can do it, but we just need to do the work, do the and work. we need to stay committed to it and and engage and and drive forward. I, I know that we can we can achieve what we're aiming to achieve. We just need to walk through the process and 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 stand strong and and it'll, it'll come through you know i gotta say that's a great final word but based on your experiences with uh, kiwis against seabed mining chasm and the success that you've had there's that is a considered opinion a considered point of view uh we'd all like to see uh this uh new industry be uh developed or at least highly scrutinized before it really gets going uh ladies and gentlemen uh phil mccabe uh with the deep sea conservation coalition uh, the pacific coordinator formerly with kiwis against seabed mining one of the leading advocates i would say uh, around the world having been down the path uh for many years now on seabed mining issues uh we really want to thank you phil for sharing your insights with the american shoreline podcast audience and uh we'd love to keep keep in touch and and get an update from you as these issues develop further yeah absolutely and and thank you peter and tyler for having me and and for the work you guys are doing and and tuning people in and turning people on about about our coastlines and our oceans and thanks for having me it's great to great to have a conversation about it appreciate your time phil have a great week Beaches are sad to build their hotels. My father 